God, he looked like he was trying too hard. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup is highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio from New York. Susan, how are you doing this morning? Great. It's great to be here. So much to talk about. Also returning to the roundup, Liz Gilbert Cohen. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign, and she has worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, great to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks, Ron. Great to be with you all this morning. And making his Roundup debut is Liam Donovan. Liam has nearly two decades of experience working at the intersection of politics and policy. He's currently a principal at Bracewell LLP and spent two election cycles at the National Republican Senatorial Committee, where, fun fact, we worked together a long, long time ago. He was also the regional finance director for Senator John Cornyn. Liam, big warm welcome to Politicology. Ron, thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Up first this week, we will take a look at the first Republican primary debate, who performed well, who might have gained ground, who might have lost it, did it matter at all. Then we're going to look at Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump's counterprogramming in an interview aired on the platform X, formerly known as Twitter. Next, we'll discuss the new song that catapulted a relatively unknown country singer to conservative folk hero and progressive hate object status. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll break down the U.S. attorney for Delaware becoming a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden and what the lingering questions around that investigation could mean for President Biden. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus or click the link at the top of your show notes today. On Wednesday nights... Eight contenders for the Republican nomination joined Fox News for the first debate of the primary season. Notably absent from the debate was, as Charlie Sykes put it, the orange elephant not in the room, uh, frontrunner Donald Trump. Uh, Later on, we'll talk about his interview with Tucker Carlson on X that aired at the same time as the debate. The candidates who did make the stage were former VP Mike Pence, Senator Tim Scott, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, and a guy named Vivek Ramaswamy. (laughs) Will Hurd was not allowed on the stage despite meeting both the donor and polling requirements because he would not sign the RNC's pledge to support the eventual nominee. So uh, before we dig into some choice moments, I want to go around the table here. Overall, what were your reactions to the debate? Liam, you're the newcomer here, so why don't you lead off? To me, Vivek was the only one that understood the assignment. There was a vacuum left uh, without the front runner, Donald Trump. And it, it was a bunch of conventional politicians sort of delivering their version of what they think this should look like. And this brash outsider sort of painting outside the lines, saying things they can't say, going places they can't go and getting the crowd into it, um, drawing flack because they don't like the rise he's had, the attention he's had and turning that into further time. I mean, I, I haven't seen the breakdown of who spoke the longest, but it had to be him because every other exchange would trigger another another 30 seconds. Uh, he took the sort of zero-sum approach to attention, and he has been uh, using that to, to um, great effect. I think we'll have to see where I think he will rise in, in the numbers. Uh, the question is, whose pocket does he pick? Does that come out of uh, come at DeSantis's expense? Does it come from the fence sitters? Could it even come a little bit from uh, Trump supporters who are just now tuning in? But I think he had the you know the night. Obviously, everybody else kind of had a serviceable performance, but didn't do anything to change the trajectory of the race. Yeah, I think that's right. It also reminded me. You mentioned Trump of the first time we saw Trump on a primary debate stage back in 2015. Susan, what did you think? I think with Vivek. It, the issue is he was a fly that everyone wanted to swat at. And some people did it successfully, like Nikki Haley. So his brashness actually worked to the advantage of Nikki Haley and Chris Christie to some extent. I was surprised how well Mike Pence did. I, I we didn't expect that at all. Ron DeSantis 
not being good at a debate is normal for him. So that wasn't shocking. What the biggest disappointment for me was Tim Scott. This was a chance for him to step up and really show off that he's ready for prime time. And he just didn't. He he didn't talk policy the way he should. He was, you know, he did the overall, I'm I'm a Southerner, I'm nice, and that's great. Like, I'm just this guy you should like. It wasn't enough. But most, most, most of all, the biggest fault of these candidates was the debate itself did not get into the issues to show there is an alternative for Trump. We can talk about what's going on on X, or we can talk about what's affecting this country. And they really should have stayed on that message to show and highlight that they are serious contenders. And really, no one did. Liz, initial reactions? Yeah, very, very similar to Susan. Uh, No surprise there. Um, I was impressed, actually, uh, with Pence um, and and Nikki Haley. For me, I thought her content was actually some of Mm. the best, if not the best. I mean, yes, Vivek had the one-liners. Christy had a few things. But I... The fact that I, as a blue heart bleeding liberal, am leaving this debate being like, wow, Nikki Haley, like she ha- she really brought something to the table. I'm like, what is wrong with this, <laughs> with this picture? Um, I-, I think overall, two thoughts, though. One, this is also very sad, like hmm. that this is the best, that this is where we are at, that Trump wasn't there, didn't have to be there, of course. Yeah. And, you know, the second thing is that this is really an audition. And to to Susan's point, who rose to that challenge? You're auditioning for two things. Number one, Trump goes to jail or Trump is deemed totally unable to run. Um, who is next in line for that? And second is who does he pick as his vice president on the ticket? And hmm. so it's an audition for that as well. <clears throat> but overall thoughts were just, it's very, very sad. And um, yeah, if I had to pick someone that I big air quotes, enjoyed uh, listening to the most. It was it was probably Nikki Haley. Yeah, let's stick on Nikki Haley for a minute because she was the first to take a swipe at Trump. And this was in reference to him adding $8 trillion to the debt. And, um, you know, we've talked previously, I'll play this clip in a second. We've talked previously about Haley's bid when she first announced and, you know, our friend Mike Madrid's take was if she wants to actually be in the race, her path forward is to like take a real swing at him. Uh, nobody at the at the time saw her doing that. She did kind of go at him here. Let's roll that clip. to turn around this economy that we've heard all of these voters talking about tonight. Then Mr. Ramaswamy, who is a successful entrepreneur nationally right now, he's beating you in the polls. Well, I don't care about polls. What I care about the fact is that no one is telling the American people the truth. The truth is that Biden didn't do this to us. Our Republicans did this to us, too. When they passed that $2.2 trillion COVID stimulus bill, They left us with 90 million people on Medicaid, 42 million people on food stamps. No one has told you how to fix it. I'll tell you how to fix it. They need to stop the spending. They need to stop the borrowing. They need to eliminate the earmarks that the Republicans brought back in. And they need to make sure they understand these are taxpayer dollars. It's not their dollars. And while they're all saying this, you have Ron DeSantis, you've got Tim Scott, you've got Mike Pence. They all voted to raise the debt. And Donald Trump added $8 trillion to our debt. And our kids are never going to forgive us for this. And so at the end of the day, you look at the 2024 budget, Republicans asked for $7.4 billion in earmarks. Democrats asked for $2.8 billion. So you tell me who are the big spenders. I think it's time for an accountant in the White House. Okay, Liam, here's my question to you. First of all, Sorry, I thought- that just- that's so good. I know I just have it to was say. it was so good and it's so good. <laughs> I, it was the first for me big sort of breakout moment of the debate. It was like, oh, oh, this is this is kind of interesting. Um, and the, so the question I have is really twofold. One, who is she trying to reach there? And two, do you think they're the same people who were applauding? Because I suspect not. Well, I think it's a really interesting um, uh, approach here because until the very end when she kind of took the hammer to, to Trump, what she's laying out there is actually the same kind of kind of populist. I mean, look, 
you can't you, there's no bigger applause line among Republican voters than attacking DC Republicans. Like that's actually a winning line as Trump demonstrated in 2016. If you can go up here and call out your opponents for being these, you know, bums that are in DC spending like drunken sailors, unlike me down in Columbia, balancing the budget, et cetera. Um, that's where she was going. She took it to, and that's how she kind of reeled these guys in. She takes a whack at DeSantis for his time in DC. She takes a whack at Tim Scott. And then she brings it home with Trump, which is the interesting thing. I think she brought some people with it, not expecting her to go there, but that is the implicit critique until she makes it explicit. Now, to your point, I think uh, you probably have some people nodding their heads that like Trump and then go, wait, what? Like, uh, hold on here. But I think that's a way to sell the the hit is to bring them along with you. Whereas like some of Christie's attacks on Trump are just so obvious, so um, in your face that you need to get people going in your direction first, build up that momentum before you really drop the hammer. Yeah. And and Christie also has the hypocrisy thing working for him at the same time is just not really taken as a credible attack dog. Susan, um, what did you think about that? Well, it's interesting because I think that when you realize that there was counter-programming on X, so a lot of Trump supporters actually tuned in there. So you probably had proportionally a good amount of people who may have voted for Trump and are, are kind of looking around for somebody. But I think Nikki Haley wasn't talking to the audience, which is just filled with staffers and supporters. So I never count the applause there. Um, it's just to see which campaign is acting poorly um, is really the best tell of those <laughs> those moments. But I think she was going to donors. I think she said, she calculated, like, I've got to show I am up for this because Tim Scott is getting a lot of eyeballs recently, and I've got to actually stand apart from him. I need to make that point because I don't I don't think Pence is viable at all. Not that I think Kylie's going to be, but I think she outshined Senator Scott, which was part of her strategy because he was coming up. And she did a very good job about it because not only did she deliver those lines, she had another thread that she pulled throughout the debate. And it was, let's be honest with the American voters. And that line worked really well. It, it really did. And she used that a couple of different times. And I thought, this is, this is actually pretty effective. Uh, at least it was for me. We got to talk about Vivek Ramaswamy now. And it's funny, you know, I mentioned a guy named Vivek because that was uh, Lucy Caldwell's line from, I don't know, some number of months ago when he first uh, was, launched his campaign. And he's seen a lot of growing support in polling. Uh, he's now a very, very, very distant number two to Trump, um, I think outpacing DeSantis now. Uh, so going into the debate, it was very likely he'd be a target. And I think this was the first time most people were going to see him in action. Uh, Chris Christie took him on early in the night after he said, you know, the rest of the field wouldn't say climate change was a hoax because they were bought and paid for. Um, let's play that exchange briefly. Hold no. on, hold I've on. I've had enough. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. I loved that. I loved that. Uh, then Ramaswamy painted himself as a truth-telling patriot who is seeking revolution. And I want to play that clip because it was the one of the night that stood out the most for me from him. I just want to respond to Mike for one second because he invoked me back. Listen, now that everybody's gotten their memorized, pre-prepared slogans out of the way, we can actually have a real discussion now. The, the, the reality and the fact of the matter is... Was that one of yours? Uh, not, not really, Mike, actually. Yeah. We're just going to have some fun tonight. And the reality is, you have a bunch of people, professional politicians, super PAC puppets, following slogans handed over to them by their 400-page super PACs last week. The real choice we face in this primary is this. Do you want a super PAC puppet? Or do you want a patriot who speaks the truth? Do you want incremental reform, which is what you're hearing about? Or do you want revolution? Okay. And I stand on the side of the American revolution. Okay. So super PAC puppet for our listeners, what he's talking about is the way presidential campaigns tend to run these days, which is you have a, you have a contribution limited entity. That's the campaign 
uh, the the hard dollar campaign, as we call it, and then you have a, uh, for lack of a better term, soft money organization that can accept unlimited amounts of money that runs most of the high dollar uh, budget items for a campaign. And most of these candidates have exactly that. That's that's where he's going here. Um, but the part I want to zero in on is revolution, and he's drawing a contrast between incremental reform and revolution. And he's like, I'm on the side of revolution. That's a really strong word to be using. And I wonder how you think GOP primary voters are hearing that word and what you think they uh, they understand that to mean. Susan? I think at the end of the day during the debate, Vivek was entertaining to Republican voters. I don't think they take him seriously. Like I said, he doesn't have the experience. He can deliver. You know, I'd just like to remind you in 2012, Michelle Bachman was leading in the polls. In 2016, so was Ben Carson. These things happen every time. They just don't hold. To me, he's just a flash in the pan and it, you know, he'll probably be able to stay around for maybe the next debate, but He's not worth taking seriously. Now, the idea of, of revolution, I actually don't think the Republican Party, as it is today under Trump, wants a different type of revolution. They just want Trump and they just want Trump to lead that revolution and the one he's been leading for, you know, the last eight, six years. But again, I just I, I dismiss him. I just don't take it seriously. Liz, dismiss him. The reason I don't, I want to uh, actually go back on something that I said uh, earlier about this debate being an audition for VP. Listening to those um, moments again, those clips, like perhaps he is up there auditioning for VP. Perhaps that's what he's doing. I don't know if someone like a Trump would ever, you know, take him seriously. But when I hear that language, that's what I'm like, is he trying to go up there and actually appeal to Donald Trump. First of all, and side note, kind of unimportant, but it is no longer virtuous, not that it ever was. It is not virtuous to not have a super PAC. So like going up there <laughs> in these one-liners and talking about campaign finance and all this stuff, like he's just saying sound bites. I do definitely agree to that. And so for that reason, I would say you can't take him seriously. But as I was just listening to those clips again, I'm like, maybe he is pandering to an audience of one, right? No one knows that better than the Lincoln Project, right? And so he's using some of these lines and language and sound bites, et cetera, to maybe just get on Trump's radar since he's so sick of all the other people. I, I don't know, but that's what just came up for me. He does have a super PAC, by the way, <laughs> himself. That's <what> <laughs> so there's that. Okay. But I, but I, but I, but, but, I but I think I come down on Liam's point, which is he he seems to certainly have understood the assignment. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, as as did I think um, Nikki Haley, uh, and you know, for their part, the New York Times opinion writers all ranked the candidates' performances. They weren't higher in Ramaswamy. Brett Stevens wrote that he's um, preening and obnoxious. He seems to think he's Jesus. I, I, it's funny, as I was writing my own notes and I'm watching the thing, I was like, as practiced as a preacher. That's how he came across to me. Uh, David French note, uh, he's a zero to me, but he might be a 10 to MAGA. Um, so I, I don't, I, French's point is the relevant yeah. one because if, if, I mean, we're, we're talking uh, among ourselves, if we watched, uh, you know, the 2016 debates and, and the things we thought were terrible or were what sold, you, you kind of have to take w what you hated the most. That's probably what's going to work here. And I think there's something to that. Um, and, and, you know, he's something of a chameleon in that he's very good, very articulate. He's playing with different themes. I don't think the revolution line is interesting. And if he continues to use that, we'll have to see. It felt like a throwaway line to me, but I'm curious where he's going with that. Yeah. Um, I do think that the, even the even if it's um, you know uh, hypocritical, the the attacks on super PACs and the system fit in with everything else he's doing. These guys are this is this is all rigged. Totally. The system's rigged against you. These guys are just a bunch of suits that won't tell you the truth. I'll tell you the truth. Very Trumpian themes and people, you know, they, that plays into a pathology that is really strong right now on the, within the Republican electorate. Yeah. Yeah. But there's one thing, if he's playing for Donald Trump, he's playing for the wrong. I mean, he's not going to get it. Donald Trump will never accept. I mean, maybe he'll make him commerce secretary because he doesn't. Yeah. You know, but Donald Trump will not accept him as a running mate 
because he's too unpredictable. He's too articulate. He's not someone who is going to just fall in line. And just, I just don't see how he could ever, his ego could take having a younger, you know, vibrant, you know, guy out there who speaks his mind. Even the fact that we're talking about this, that, that like, Vivek could possibly be on the ticket is crazy. Wait, I don't and think he, he that, could. The <laughs> fact that we're talking about him right now is a win for him. Like it proves that he did exactly. something. And I, you know, people blanch when I make this comparison, but to me, he is he is a Republican Mayor Pete in that people that that are that are have obvious talents have have obvious appeal are of a very certain age, a very certain drive and ambition and and, and intelligence, and came into a, a, a race they had no business being in, but because they can hang and in some ways rhetorically run circles around these guys, uh, debates and, and moments like this are ways they can walk into the table with one ship and walk out with, with you know, a mountain of them. How he chooses to you know, pursue his career going forward, the guy's 38. You know, I don't think he came into this wanting to be a cabinet secretary, wanting to be VP, but the fact that he's even in that conversation tells you, hey, there's an opportunity to be a player going forward. And for all these guys, you just want to be a player, whether that's in conservative media, whether that's in conservative politics, the sky's the limit. You have three decades left in, in your fruitful political career. Yeah. If you want that. Yeah. yeah when, I, when I on say, the stage in the first place, when I Go say ahead. pandering to the audience of one, like I, Susan, I agree with you. I don't think he will be successful. I think that's just what he is, is trying to do. I think, you know, when you saw Trump pick, Pence, he obviously went for boring vanilla because he wants to suck up all the oxygen. That is super clear. But when they got asked questions, um, you know, Vivek's response to, would you pardon Trump? And he said, hell yes. Like, could have just said, yeah, or could have said other things. Like, it was an emphatic hell yes. And so he wants to, I think, show up as like a mega, mega alternative. Maybe it's kind of mm. unclear, but, but to your point, Ron, about being practiced, it was so clear that either he is quite good on his feet and just this is his skill set or that he rehearsed and prepared for this moment. Like I don't think any yeah. of the others, maybe Nikki Haley um, had, had done as well. Yeah, I think both can be true, but um, the, the 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 slipperiness that he sort of gave off reminded me a lot of the way Donald Trump handled, like the the complete disregard for rules doesn't matter. I'm going to interrupt as much as I need to, and also they let him. Like it was just there was a moment where they're all like, "Can you guys please get control of this debate?" And they're like, "We're trying." Well, that's a really <laughs> big important yeah. point you make, Ron. Just to say, like that debate was a blank show, yeah. like. They could not control the You can, say, the you can say it, Susan. <laughs> In my head, I'm thinking, what is what is a What's blank, a blank show? show? Like, Susan, tell us. <laughs> it was just, all right. <laughs> but my point is, is that these moderators had no control of the room, no control over the candidates. The questioning, I mean, there was a whole lot wrong on the other side of that table that re- whoever's moderating next better learn from because- This goes to what I was kind of getting to earlier. This is the opportunity to show that there are thoughtful Republicans out there who are alternatives to Trump if you're looking for one. But they better be thoughtful and and policy oriented or at least looking forward and showing you, telling you what your vision is, but or what their vision is, excuse me. So what they did. It was a disservice, actually, to the candidates. They, they created a lot of harm in that debate. Okay, I guess we should talk about Ron DeSantis. Wow, that's, yeah, I guess, really? I mean, well, I mean, in, in that uh, he didn't do himself any favors. I think this was his moment, like, to do something. And I didn't, you know, I think, God, he looked like he was trying too hard. Uh, to me, like he just yeah, he's just smiling at oof. the end. He go off, he sound angry, and then, and then he go and then yeah, like, he was all like, "What teeth. was that?" <laughs> yeah, and then that moment when he wanted to be Donald Trump, Anthony Fauci, you're fired. Like, dude, that's not your line. Uh, I don't know. I I thought it was I thought it was um, weak, and then and then Christie's you know Christie basically you got what you expect from him, which is uh, you know as he was attacked for just being an MSNBC talking head now. So. Uh, I don't know before we should probably move on to the, you know, the, the, the Trump Tucker thing, but 
Any other thoughts or highlights, moments from the from the debate you thought were actually meaningful? There was one line that has gotten zero attention, but I think it's really reflective of how Republicans believe in governing. It's when Mike Pence was responding to Nikki Haley's position on abortion. And she said, we have to build consensus. We have to start working towards goals, basically. And he said, and I'll quote, consensus is the opposite of leadership. No, that is not how you govern. And to me, if that's their philosophy, that's why they keep losing because they can't get what they need done because you do need consensus to move this country forward. Again, you don't get the whole loaf. You get 75%, 60%, be happy and call it a day. That's how Biden actually has gotten more bipartisanship legislation than anyone thought humanly possible because it was about consensus. So it just, again, no one, the fact that also no one picked it up is shocking to me, but just that thought of that's how they believe in governance. Yeah, that did stick out to me. Liz, any other moments? I mean, that line is absolutely uh, crazy. Um, I I know I'm like such a Nikki Haley stan uh, right now, but I just wanted to say, if I am working on the Biden campaign or any of its um, you know, tangent parties, I would uh, take the quotes of, quote, no one is telling the American people the truth. The truth is that Biden didn't do this to us. Our Republicans did this to us too. And also, quote, Donald Trump added $8 trillion to our debt. Our kids are never going to forgive us for this, both obviously attributed to Nikki Haley as the clip already showed. But I'm taking that and I'm putting it in digital ads. I'm putting it on a billboard. I'm doing something with that. And so I, uh, something that I am uh, hoping to see um, is, is kind of the use of how some of these lines in particular, those two, might actually give the Biden campaign or some of these super PACs or what have you a, a little juice to, to get a little momentum. I will sadly probably watch it all pass by, but that is something that I'm going to keep my, my eyes open for. I thought she had a particularly good answer on climate change, uh, and she dealt with that pretty pretty effectively in the moment when nobody else would would touch it. Uh, and then there was the, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. I thought that was uh, uh, effective, a nice way to draw contrast. Liam, any other moments? I thought it was interesting. Uh, a couple times it flared up, and you saw it both in the talking points of DeSantis, uh, but particularly with Vivek, and it came to a head in his exchange with with Mike Pence, where um, it, it was sort of a darkness versus light. I mean, really, this is, I think, the candidates trying to reflect the mood of the electorate, and uh, DeSantis kept saying over and over, we're a country in decline, but decline is a choice. So he he tried to hedge a little bit by saying, you know, everything's horrible, but, like, it doesn't have to be. And Vivek just said, everything's horrible, and, uh, and, and actually gave... Pence a hard times like you you can give your shining city on a hill speech or morning in America no, that's what he said you're more you can give your morning in America speech all you want and you know I think that's that's really just kind of downstream of of Trump and 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 what people have learned just based on Trump's success that people want to hear uh, but I thought that tension was very interesting because very explicitly the Tim Scott candidacy even if he he blended into the out the background here but his candidacy has been focused on like. People want an optimistic vision. We just need to give them that alternative. Pence is just running the same old. Like he, he gave very good answers for like 2007 or something. Um, and it was just interesting to see Vivek sort of seize on that and see that like, because it plays into that whole argument of like, we're not going back to the old way, the elite establishment stuff. And and DeSantis was kind of playing with it. He wouldn't go fully out there and and engage on that. But you could hear him with his with the way he's trying to play with that we're a nation in decline. Like that's a bleak message and not something you'd normally associate with the Republican party. And he's trying to sort of stake out turf that's near Trump, but like a little bit this way. And it's just indicative of, I think number one, um, how he's positioning himself and number two, why he was overshadowed in this debate. Cause he's not willing to be quite as explicit and bold in the things that he's saying. He's still trying to massage it and uh, find a third way. You know, what you just said about DeSantis reminds me of, uh, Liz will appreciate this, a dancer who is counting the steps in his head as they're making the steps, as opposed to somebody who's actually feeling the music. <laughs> wow. That's good. That's quite good. <laughs> Thank That's you. Good. I, and I think, look, I think DeSantis, 
if you were any, you know, months ago, you would have said first debate, Ron DeSantis has to go out there and be a rock star. And the problem was he did because the hype had gotten so out of control that he was never going to live up to it. And in the meantime, the, the expectations have gotten such that the bar was on the floor and all he had to do is not go up there and have the world's most awkward, cringeworthy moment that went viral. And he did that. So in that sense, he, he didn't do himself any favors, except he kind of stabilized, I think, the chatter because it was it was so negative. And you were at a point where where the donor tailspin could have been pretty bad if he'd had a bad night. And so in that sense, having a few moments you could clip and say he got his message across and he didn't do himself any damage is probably enough. Um, but he's going to need to step it up in, in Simi Valley. You know what? I think DeSantis lost before he announced. He never went after Trump. Tr- Trump had one prime target, period. And it was after the general election through about February. That's when he was weakest and people wouldn't go after him. The the guy everyone was turning to, Ron DeSantis, if he would have pounced then, he he would have risked MAGA, that's for sure. But he could have started chipping away at Trump and his big, this this is really important. And it's what Chris Christie is doing now. He could have started really, getting bad poll numbers for Trump against Biden to make him unelectable. That's what that's what scares Trump the most is he he all of a sudden he's got a six, seven, eight point spread between him and Biden for a general election. He knows he can't come back from that. So I think DeSantis by waiting, DeSantis should really get out and get out somewhat intact because he's going to keep dropping. Better to say I'm out and look towards 2028, still governor of Florida. It's a, you know, he can run on as doing a, you know, being a governor, a current governor and, and just call it a day because he's going to, he's going to be fourth in the polls within a month. Let's talk about Trump on Tucker on X, just five minutes before the debate kicked off Tucker Carlson aired a pre-taped interview he did with Donald Trump at his Bedminster golf course on X, the social media network previously known as Twitter. The conversation ranged from bashing the other Republican candidates and Fox News as irrelevant, speculating whether Jeffrey Epstein actually killed himself. Trump wasn't sure. Whether Trump's political rivals will have him killed, the beauty of the Panama Canal, low water pressure, and whether we're headed toward a civil war. Carlson opened the interview asking Trump why he decided to skip the debate. Here's what Trump said. Mr. President, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Why are you at the Fox News debate tonight in Milwaukee? Well, you know, a lot of people have been asking me that, and many people said you shouldn't do them, but you see the polls have come out, and I'm leading by 50 and 60 points. And, you know, some of them are at one and zero and uh, two and I'm saying, do I sit there for an hour or two hours, whatever it's going to be, and uh, get harassed by people that shouldn't even be running for president? Should I be doing that? Uh, and a network that isn't particularly friendly to me. Yeah. So uh, he's saying the obvious here. Uh, I mean, you know, tactically, he's making the right decision, I think. Um Carlson also asked Trump if he thought his political rivals, the Democrats this time, would try to kill him. And here's that exchange. So so the reason I'm asking you is I'm looking at the trajectory since 2015 when you got into politics, yeah. you know, for real. And then one, uh, there, it started with protests against you, massive protests, right. organized protests by the left. And then it moved to impeachment twice. Right. And now indictment. I mean, the next stage is is violence. Are you worried that they're going to try and kill you? Why wouldn't they try and kill you, honestly? Uh, They're savage animals. They are people that are sick, really sick. Okay. And uh, last but not least, sorry, I got to play you one more. Um, Their conversation ended with a question about whether we're headed to civil war. This is how they wrapped. Let's listen to that. So do you think it's possible that there's open conflict? We seem to be moving I, I towards don't something. Know. I don't know because I don't know what it, you know, I, I can say this. Uh, there's a level of passion that I've never seen. There's a level of hatred that I've never seen. And that's probably a bad combination. Probably a bad combination. Um, I think he's not wrong about that. Liam, does this interview 
change anything. I mean, I think I think everybody will probably agree you know, strategically it was the right move for him not to do the debate. But like, you know, I don't I don't I don't know what changes from this interview other than you know another round of headlines reminding everybody that Donald Trump is probably going to be the nominee. I think the fact of the fact of doing the interview, the symbolism of doing the interview with who he did the interview with when he did it um, was the news. That's the that's the significant piece of this. You know, the 57 minutes uh, that followed were not, I mean, sort of put you to sleep. There wasn't much there. Um, But the fact of counter programming is is a a pretty strong troll move. Um, The fact that it wasn't real time, it wasn't actually competing. This is just something they dropped on the web. Like, you know, I think I was expect the way it was billed, I was expecting some sort of head to head live event. And obviously it wasn't that. So, but, but you look, you know, to your point, Ron, it was, by any measure, and, and look, it could have it could have gone differently. So I guess theoretically, but by avoiding this, he didn't give them the oxygen. He didn't give them the legitimacy they sought. Uh, they look like they're you know squabbling at the kids' table. And uh, I think the biggest news I got uh, yesterday coming out of the Trump camp wasn't from the Tucker interview. It was from the Ruthless podcast. Uh, game day pregame episode where Chris Lasavita came on and said that Trump's not going to debate in California next month either. So this wasn't just a Fox News squabble. This wasn't just uh, this snapshot in time. Uh, while he always, I think, reserves the right to change his mind at any given point, um, he's going to maintain this posture of why would I debate? I'm, you know, this is a fake primary. You go have your fake debate, but I'm the guy. And I think uh, that's the right move until until somebody's uh, you know until until he hears footsteps. Yeah, Susan, toward the beginning of this, to Liam's point, Tucker asked uh, Trump something something along the lines of, you know, do you think TV is dying or do you think TV is dead? How do you think that this approach, airing this on X, compares to you know as 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 uh, as I think Trump said, basically the cable news is dying, dead. Uh, they could not have gotten the same exposure uh, if they put it on TV. Well, they certain, certainly couldn't get the same exposure if they put it on Truth Social, <laughs> which has a declining <laughs> amount of um, members. But it, to Liam's point, when he said, I thought it would be a live response. Like, that's what I thought that the moderators may have a hard time with is that Donald Trump is dropping these bombs as the debate's going on and the candidates may have to respond to it in real time. But it didn't happen. And Donald Trump was being the Donald Trump during that interview. There was nothing that suggests that he, he it wasn't his typical spiel. And as far as going after TV and cable, Broadcast and, and cable in their traditional senses, yes, they, they are declining. Everything is going to be streaming eventually. We see the wire cutters. But that's not what Donald Trump was talking about. He wasn't having an intellectual conversation. He was trying to dump on Fox News. That's all. That was a, That is him just saying Fox is losing. You know, whatever he says, that's, that's it. Liz, any thoughts on this entire exchange? Kind of my overview thoughts on the debate. I just, it's it's so sad to me. I'm sure there is a, a better, more sophisticated word out there. But when I think about what took up the airwaves last night on media, on social media, on cable television, et cetera, like it's all just very sad and pathetic to me. I, I do, you know, Ron, I think you already mentioned this. Like, I, I think we would all tactically agree that Trump did make the right choice not getting on that stage. I mean, he obviously had no need. Um, and and I'm not the history buff here, but has a former president ever been on a debate stage in a primary? Hmm. Susan's shaking her head. Liam, probably no. I, yeah. No. Can't and think that of one. Was, you know, I think that was a big point um, that he, yeah, because he wants to be treated like an exactly. incumbent president, exactly. which he's not. So, and that's the problem because he's not an incumbent president, so he doesn't get that. But by the way, don't underestimate the fact that he's listening to his lawyers. Uh, I'm pretty uh, sure the reason why they did a tape thing with Tucker, it was because the lawyers were present. He didn't do that without lawyers present. And if you remember, on Monday, he was supposed to give the big reveal of all the proof of what happened in Georgia. And all of a sudden it was like, mm, nope, not going to do that. And it was 
because of his lawyer. So there, there is that aspect yeah, there. He's also turning himself in in jail today, later tonight or something. So that's where, <laughs> that's where I was going to go. And Susan, that was my thought exactly when I saw, when, you know, I think we all are in agreement here that we thought it was built as this like major, you know, not combative, but like uh, the contrast between the debate going on and then this live interview. And clearly the reason it could not be live is because of what is going on with him more broadly. Um, So I I completely agree with that. And where I was going to go is like, this aired on the eve of Trump becoming the first president to ever have a mugshot. Like this is happening today. And so I think there is more going on there in terms of the legal ramifications um, than, than we all understand. Um, so I couldn't agree more with that point. Um, but the other thing that I did want to say is Tucker asking the question about whether or not he thinks that people are going to come and kill Donald Trump. I obviously had so many issues with everything that was discussed in this conversation. These are two people that I, uh, and so many, loathe uh, in a way that we didn't know was possible. But to ask that question about murder, about killing, they're coming for you in this violent manner, that was to incite something that wasn't there in the interview. Like he purposefully brought it up. He brought it into the conversation to bring it back to violence. And I just, I mean, again, juvenile statement. I have such a problem with that. I mean, that was total bullshit. Again, juvenile statement. Like this is really a much more significant issue than just like a throwaway line or question from Tucker. Like it had no place being in this conversation. Do you think they are going to kill you? And when he talks about savage animals and all this stuff. Again, it's painting that visual. It's bringing the the picture of January 6th back in people's minds. It's bringing, you know, Charlottesville back in people's minds. Like it's bringing this era of violence that I don't think people have forgotten about, but I think it reignited it in a way that I don't believe had any uh, purpose uh, or need to be in that dialogue. Okay. I think that's a really good segue to the story, frankly, that I have been most uh, excited to talk about, which is this song, Richmond, North of Richmond. Republicans kicked off the debate. Uh, it's it's funny. We we chose our segments a, like a day before what we're going to talk about on this show today. And it was a surprise to me that the very first, the opening of the debate was this song, this segment, which we had a robust discussion on during our editorial call. Uh, this is the number one song on the Billboard charts right now. It uh, it hit the top of iTunes, uh, top 50 on Spotify. Last week, a relatively unknown Virginia country singer, his name's Oliver Anthony, uh, or his stage name is Oliver Anthony, was catapulted to uh, conservative folk hero status, also progressive hate object status for his new song, Richmond, North of Richmond. And I want to, play the first minute or so of this song um, for you guys and also for our listeners. Go ahead, CJ. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me. People like you wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is living in the new world with an old soul. These rich men, North or Richmond, Lord knows it all. Just wanna have total control. Wanna know what you think. Wanna know what you do. Okay, so this song, when I first heard it, I listened to it like five times back back to back because it made me feel something. Like I got chills the first time I listened to it. And uh, and it's so it's not surprising to me at all that it's it's climbed the chart so quickly because there's something really genuine about it. There's something 
real in his voice that's kind of undeniable. Not only is he, you know, is he a talented singer, but there's soul in it, there's emotion in it. And um and the thing that, you know, we'll we'll get into this in a second, but the thing that um really uh I thought missed the mark was all of the commentariat that sort of sprung up as this uh as this song was making so many waves. Um, focused on a parsing the lyrics word for word and trying to analyze the policy prescriptions that he was uh, advocating for, or b trying to outright dismiss him uh, as a person uh, with a lot of ad hominem attacks and stuff that I thought was unfounded and baseless, as opposed to allowing an ordinary person uh, to create a piece of art to express a point of view that is sort of uh, what their life experience has been. And so to me, we'll talk about the lyrics, we'll talk about what you guys thought about this, but I thought there was something truer in the music than the words themselves, than the, than the literal reading of the, of the words and the lyrics. And so that was my take on it. Um, I had a long conversation with a, a mutual friend of ours, a uh, friend of the pod who um, is on the left and was like, yeah, uh, there's a lot of stuff in here that Democrats would probably talk about in private, but we don't talk about in public um, and we don't have real good messages on. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's real bad. So um, we'll get into some of this, but I want to just go around here, same as we did on the debate. Liam, I'd love for you to lead off because, um, uh, well, for lots of reasons, but I'm curious what you made of this. Um, and I guess I would also sort of remind our listeners that what we saw in the debate stage, I think, uh, was a contrast between, you know, some older version of the Republican Party and its approach to governance and a new sort of struggling, uh, figuring out how to deal with this new populism that is here. It's not going anywhere. And what does that mean for uh, for policy and for governance? And I think that was... That was um, sort of fuel for some of the, the the conflict we saw on the stage. So anyway, I put it to you. What did you make of this song and the and the the backlash to it? Yeah, I'd say Ron, I mean I quite like the song in the same way you did. I had a sort of visceral reaction. I remember when it first dropped that first day, or at least there was there was chatter online that this this song had hit iTunes, check it out. And and it really there's something about the performance, something about the um you know the song itself um uh you know stir something and i think the flip side of what you mentioned which is there were people writing it off uh immediately or you know finding finding a nitpicking or whatever i think the, the flip side is some of the people pushing it were pushing it less be, letting it be the art that it is and pushing it based on mm. see this is this just proves my worldview this just proves my policy prescription so i thought that was you know it sort of works both ways and has now come back full circle to where this this poor guy who who went from obscurity to you know a, a weird level of not even not stardom not celebrity but like a disruptive uh you know main character for the day or week sort of thing where you don't even know how fleeting it is um it's it's almost a kind of a perilous position but he's gone on a couple media appearances tried to figure out how to you know how to navigate this and uh, i think the the clip that that um, made the most news was i think he just said a a very throwaway platitude line about how diversity is our strength and we're a melting pot and we just need to get along, which is the least offensive thing you can yeah. possibly think of. And, and there were elements of the right that had, had said, this is our guy because they thought he agreed with them on everything. And now oh, he's a sellout. The rich men north of Richmond got him. So it was just the perfect kind of arc of our sort of uh, social media moment. Um, but yeah, man, I'm interested to see what what comes next. He did release another single, which actually gets into one of the things we we talked about just a few minutes ago, which is the next song. Similar energy, similar kind of um, uh, you know lament. But it's called "Brink of War." I mean, they're mm. playing with all kinds of themes that are out there. Pretty pretty dark stuff. Mm. But um, but I think he's a talented guy. Um, I think the you know lyrics could leave. Could use work, but I think the raw talent there and the raw energy is something special. Yeah, Liz, I want to quote something to you from the New York Magazine piece on this. Eric Levitz, writing for Intelligencer, um, he says the fact that I have more progressive views than Anthony likely reflects our disparate social circumstances more than our disparate levels of innate virtue. 
rural working class people sometimes know individuals. This is uh, when he's commenting on some of the other lyrics. Know individuals whose personal failings lead them to become uninterested in seeking work. They far less commonly encounter jobless trust fund kids. Meanwhile, means-tested social programs can sometimes inspire downward-looking class envy as Medicaid recipients may end up with more social, more secure healthcare coverage than those who earn just above the threshold for eligibility. What did what, first of all, what did you make of this song, and where do you think the Democratic Party could do better in reaching uh, voters who resonate with uh, with the with the sentiment in it? Yeah, that's a really good question. The first part about what I felt in the song, you know, I I am definitely in the same boat. I clicked play, and I was like, oh shit, like this is this is. A, this is great. Like he sounds in terms of the sound, right? Like that is not only a music genre that I personally enjoy, but like, yes, you can tell he is singing for something. It is a song he wrote. He's not singing someone else's lyrics, sharing someone else's perspectives. Like this is about him and it's him and his instrument in the woods and, and all of that. It's interesting for me to read all of the articles that say it is, you know, this conservative right wing anthem when I believe the song is not targeting Republicans or Democrats. It's just targeting people who are fed up with politics. And I could argue that you find people who fit that category on both sides. I think you're not going to find a, let's call it liberal, progressive, democratic artist um, who is going to write a song like this because it is attacking like more broadly what's happening in D.C. And you could say that because the Democrats are controlled in D.C., it is attacking the Democrats. Like I see how it has spiraled and how it has become more known as a super right-wing anthem instead of, you know, one article called it a um, a blue-collar uh, anthem, which I would argue it more fits that mold. I think that this actually speaks to a larger point about Democrats not latching on, and just bear with me while I go off on a little bit of a tangent here, it's not latching on to um, pop culture moments and to bringing elements of kind of art and culture into something political. Like, I haven't seen an article that talks about, you know, this artist's uh, political affiliation specifically as it relates to how he feels about Donald Trump or the current state of the GOP. Again, there's a lot more reading to to do on this, so I, very likely that I could have missed something. But it wasn't that a candidate or a campaign kind of commissioned for this to happen. And the fact that it opens the Republican debate, I mean, they're really latching onto it. And so I think there are missed opportunity, opportunities on the left where there are cultural moments like this where we don't, and I say we as a Democrat, we don't sink our teeth into something mm. that goes past the beltway, that goes into everybody's home. If you have a phone, if you have a computer, and frankly, if you don't have either of those things, you can probably still access this song. This is a political, uh, cultural moment that can reach everybody. Mm. And I don't see the Democrats taking advantage of, of any of those opportunities at all. So Susan, here's, I want to offer you something too. This is from uh, Daniel McCarthy writing in the New York Post and the way he closed this piece I thought was very insightful and I'd love your take on it. He says, the problem with the people north of Richmond isn't only their progressive politics or their self-dealing as insiders in a system they control, it's also that control itself. The sense that the destiny of men like Oliver Anthony is decided far away where they have no voice. He closes, if the counties and states north of Richmond were red instead of blue and treated the working men south of Richmond with magnanimity rather than neglect or contempt, there would still be a problem because what those men need isn't patronage, it's control over their own lives and a say in their fate of their own communities. What do you make of his point that this really is about uh, a sense of a lack of control, which is what um, what he sings about in the opening stanza there? 
Yeah, just let me go back to something, Ron. Yeah. Um, the only person more surprised that this song was played as the opening of the debate was Ron DeSantis when he had to respond. So what does this mean to you? His face was yeah. priceless. Uh, He's like, wait, what? They, I was, I was, <laughs> was to that, to the, like, I was surprised that none of them took that and ran with it. It was such a softball. Like, such a opener. softball. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. They could, they could, I mean, it, it, it was, you know, it was something, yeah. but, Going back to that point, I mean, when you listen to this song, here's the thing. It's honest, it's true, and it's gritty. And it's about a guy who's saying, I have this life. I just don't understand why it can't be just almost like a little easier. Like, why do I have to, why do those people in Washington keep doing stuff that just drags me and my community down? There, it is control. It really is not about D or R, in my opinion. It is about people making decisions that affect every all Americans, and those people don't have a freaking clue what he goes through every day, and what people have to struggle with. And it, like I said, Republicans just don't care, and Democrats just want to, you know, as a general rule, the perception is just give them some money or do something else. There's no, you know, big, you know, some big policy when really they just want to just have a shot. But the the government has become so heavy on their backs that it is affecting their everyday life. Just to drive, drive home exactly what you guys uh, both uh, just said. This is from elsewhere in his catalog, a song called Dog On It. And this is his line. And Republicans and Democrats, I swear they're all just full of crap. I ain't never met a good city slicker bureaucrat. So, I mean, it's a, it's an equal opportunity, uh, uh, sentiment. And I think what, what's interesting to me is, and this is like the last gasp before the real, uh, sorting of the parties along social economic lines. But if you remember not that long ago, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Rahm Emanuel rode uh, back to, and 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 frankly, um, Harry Reid rode back to majorities. I mean, Ron and I were were, were there to to, to see it, um, riding back a populist backlash in rural areas against the Republican city slickers in the Bush administration. So we're not that far from an era where this this energy has been harnessed by Democrats. I think we're just in a different moment um, because of of. Um, you know, the acceleration, certainly during the Trump era, that has made it seem hopeless to even uh, bother going after some of these some of these voters. That's a really that's a really good point. There are there are archetypes that aren't uh, totally dissimilar to like a Bruce Sting, Br- Bruce Springsteen song, right? The working class feeling left behind, feeling no forgotten. Can, yeah. uh, and uh, Bruce Springsteen's a Democrat, Democrats, Democrat. Like he was the icon of the working class Democratic party, right? So I think there's, I think there's, it's funny when I was talking to this um, unnamed mutual friend of ours on the show, uh, I said, um, I said like all of the, all of the liberal commentary out here is like parsing words, talking about policy and where he's wrong and all this stuff. I'm like, when did, when did the democratic party sort of lose its sense of empathy for the working class or lose its able to its messaging toward the working class. When did that happen? And he's like, yeah, man, we don't, we don't really talk about it as much because we own corporations now. So we like them. (laughs) Uh, so anyway, let's, uh, turn to our look aheads now that we've, um, talked about some of the biggest stories this week. What are you watching under the radar or wherever it may fall on the radar if it's a ufo susan (laughs) it's not a ufo i'm sorry although chris christie's response to you gotta give me me the the ufo UFO question (laughs) was was actually pretty good um the thing i'm watching and actually kind of goes on the conversation we were just having is mortgage rates and affordable housing and the reason I'm talking about that is when I worked with Emerson College polling, they did a Hispanic survey. And like one of the top issues was affordable housing. And people determine that by saying, I can't buy a house. I can't afford to buy a house. Now, a year ago, interest rates were still pretty low, but now interest rates are so high 
and people are really turning away from buying new homes, even commercial real estate. Like there's been the fewest permits in New York City in over given out in over 20 years. We're not building. And that's a problem as a country. But the, I think the number one issue that Democrats can hone in on to show relatability is that people need to be, should be able to buy a home. We're not talking, you know, crazy expensive homes. We're talking just buy a place because that's part of the American dream, right? You buy a house. You know, you have a family. These are the simple things that that guy was, t- you know, the singer was talking about with, I just want to come home. I want to have a roof over my head. I want to be there with my family. It's, it, it shouldn't be too much to ask. And with these high interest rates, I think that the Democrats are really going to get socked with it. And it will fall under the economy and polling. But breaking it out is something we should really watch. That's a good, that's, yeah, that's a, good point about reading polling when people say, oh, when they're commenting on the economy in general, it's basically meaningless unless you know, unless you're really diving into what they mean by that. Liz, what'd you bring? So I, not a totally new topic, but a new development, Um, you know, still obviously closely following this Trump Mar-a-Lago indictment. I mean, all of them, right? You know, already mentioned earlier in the episode um, that he's down in Georgia today, first president to ever, you know, take a mugshot, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the interesting um, development in the Mar-a-Lago indictment specifically is that the IT guy flipped. Um, And this is... I think it could be maybe the first of many. So what's important to note here is that part of the reason that he, um, you know, reported a prior false testimony um, is is because he had a change in legal representation. And so because the lawyer um, is deemed to be conflicted out because it is the lawyer, you know, we've known from the beginning, the Trump organization brought in all these lawyers. They are really running the show. It's all about protecting um, the the secrets, the story, what have you. And as soon as it was deemed a conflict um, that the lawyer for this employee number four, as they're calling it, um, you know, the, the IT guy at Mar-a-Lago, um, that it was a conflict because he was representing other members who will be cross-examined, as soon as he left, this guy came out saying, I gave you a false testimony. And so if we start seeing more changes in legal representation, I think we'll start seeing a lot of people saying, I'm really sorry I lied, but here's what I know. And specifically, IT is so interesting to me because that's the surveillance footage that he's saying doesn't exist, wasn't tampered with, nothing weird here. And he's coming back and saying, just kidding. I was only saying that because my lawyer who actually had a mega conflict was telling me to say that. So not to say this is our, you know, smoking gun or whatever, but it's starting to to crumble. And to me, this felt like a big one. So I'll be watching the the changes um, as legal counsel, uh, you know, starts to starts to shift around on that one. And by the way, um, Liz, it's not the first time it's happened. Ca- Cassidy Hutchinson, right, switched attorneys yeah. to be before she gave testimony. That's right to Congress. That's right, and. Because she was afraid of lying. You That's know, right. she knew she couldn't go ahead and lie because it, w- it was this crime. Uh, absolutely. So it's, it's a good point to follow because, again, we've seen it before. We'll yeah. keep seeing it again. That's right. Yeah. Instead of drip, 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 it's flip, flip, flip. Liam, what did you bring? Well, speaking of drip, drip, drips, I think the, the story that I've been keeping an eye on has been out there um, in the weeks leading up to this debate. And I think the debate won't do anything to change it. It's just the dissatisfaction among um, donors, among, you know, operatives, uh, unaffiliated establishment types, just looking at the polls, looking at the fact that nobody's doing what needs to be done to, to put themselves in a position to beat Trump and pining for a white knight. And that's mostly manifests itself in stories about Glenn Youngkin. Um, and that, that's sort of, you know, it's, that's, we've, we've done this news cycle a few times. And I think what's been missed in this is Glenn Youngkin's more than happy to tap into uh, that dissatisfaction, that, that sort of yearning for a new candidate to open wallets and get money for the elections coming up in Virginia in November. And I think that's what people are forgetting. There's a number of elections in November coming up pretty quickly with some pretty significant implications. Um, it's going to be too late for Glenn Youngkin to get into this race, no matter what he I mean, he's going to be 
full sphinx, you know, until Cheshire Cat grin until until uh, the the election's over, whether or not Republicans win the majority. But between Virginia, uh, Kentucky, with Daniel Cameron against uh, uh, Governor Bashir down there, um, these are some pretty significant elections. With uh, I think some tea leaves to be read for for next time. And I think in the case of Yunkin in particular, uh, if well, if they if they have success, even if they don't, I think what I'm watching for Youngkin isn't 2024; it's 2026. Because if he wants a future in politics, that's the opportunity for him. And winning back Richmond uh, would be fully in the Senate down there would be the first step to uh, something that would really, I think, make uh, make certain and Mark Warner and others in the Virginia Democratic Party pretty pretty nervous. Totally. It's uh it's interesting you mentioned Yunkin because I just had this great conversation with um Deb Otis from Fair Vote and she was talking we we're talking about ranked choice voting and how Virginia had used ranked choice voting in its in its, in its gubernatorial primary uh, to nominate Glenn, Glenn Youngkin is the beneficiary of ranked choice voting, essentially uh, allowing the Republicans a candidate who can compete and actually win statewide. And she had the very important note that uh, there are four states in the 2024 Republican primary that will be using ranked choice voting. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. Um, I have one quick story. Uh, that everybody should know about if you don't already. I just want you to be aware that Japan has started releasing treated nuclear wastewater from the now destroyed uh, Fukushima power plant into the Pacific Ocean. Um, This is after essentially the United Nations signed off on this plan. Um, Apparently it's going to take 30 years and, you know, they're doing a lot of filtering first, but uh, bottom line is radioactive water from Fukushima is going to be dumped into the Pacific Ocean. China subsequently now has banned seafood imports from Japan. So there's that. Uh, All right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where unfortunately we're going to talk about Hunter Biden's continuing legal trouble, uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, Liam? At LP Donovan on, I guess we're calling it X now. <laughs> we are, we are indeed calling it X. I also have a Substack at LP Donovan at Substack.com. Terrific, Liz. Uh, still just on Instagram for me these days <laughs> at Liz Gilbert at Liz Gilbert Cohen. And Susan, Twitter slash X at Del Percio S. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet. We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.